Radio 4 presents the Mark Steele Lectures, a series of lectures on people with a passion. Tonight, Aristotle. Of all the things that Aristotle tried to prove, what he proved most successfully, it seems to me, is how cruel history can be. Because here was one of the greatest thinkers of all time, and all most of us know about him is from a line in a Monty Python song. <laughs> Do most of us know whether he got near to unravelling the secrets of the universe? No, but we know he was a bugger for the bottle. <laughs> it's like if in 2,000 years' time you ask people if they'd heard of Stephen Hawking, and they all went, oh yeah, he's the one who got pissed in Dawkin. But all the ancient Greek philosophers were really doing was to ask the questions we all ask, except most of us stop when we're four. Because at that age, you're so full of enthusiasm and, and you question everything. Mummy, Daddy, Mummy, Daddy, why can't cats talk? How much does the moon weigh? Why aren't I a frog? What does noise look like? <laughs> and our attitude seems to be bloody kids asking questions all the time. We'll send them to school. That'll put a stop to that. <laughs> but in this programme, I'm going to suggest that the philosophy of Aristotle helped to shape not only his age, which was one of the most exciting times in human history, but all the ages up to our own. And he and his age inspired scientists, philosophers, playwrights, poets, and people of passion for thousands of years. And Aristotle was extremely connected to the real world, to the extent that he was the first person to compile a comprehensive list of the winners of the Olympic Games. I just love the idea of Aristotle in a bar saying, go on, Plato, right, pick any year you like and I'll show you on the pole vault. <laughs> So the first question to ask is why it was at that time, at that place, that there were so many philosophers. Now any account that just starts from the ideas rather than the conditions in which those ideas were thought must assume it's just coincidence that in Athens there seemed to be loads of clever blokes working out why we exist. Or it was one of those crazies that just come and go for no apparent reason. And for some reason, at some point between now and then, Greeks presumably just went off philosophy and just took up being barbers instead. And I suppose somewhere around 800 AD, there was a crossover point where you'd be having your hair cut and the barber would say, is you on a day off today, sir? Then you're lucky for if you is a soul, you never have a day off for it's immortal, innit? <laughs> the fact that there were cities and public buildings and books and all the things that made a career in philosophy possible while most of Europe was still huddled around in tiny settlements was due to the previous 200 years of civilization. Now I should say at this point that however marvellous the civilization was, it was based on the brutality of slavery, but we'll come on to that later. I know that's a bit like saying, for the time being, I'm just going to look at Anne Widdicombe's shoes. <laughs> Around 700 BC, a new layer of small farmers using the slave system were able to make the land much more productive and they began to challenge the big landowners for power and a tension grew between the two groups in which the aristocracy tended to see the small farmers as new money. Now these small farmers became increasingly militant about demanding a say in the running of towns and land. Conflicts continued and the history of how they were resolved was written by Aristotle in his book Politics, in which he writes of an Athenian called Solon, who drew up what was probably the world's first political constitution. Which was historic enough, but Solon did it as a poem. Now you whose coffers are full, pressed down and overflowing, put a curb on your greedy soul. Could you imagine a modern politician ever having enough passion to put forward a policy in a poem? The nearest to Solon that anyone from New Labour has got is... Now you, whose coffers are full, pressed down and overflowing, would you like a passport? <laughs> now, Solon's system was almost certainly the world's first democracy. 30,000 people were entitled not only to vote, but to attend the assembly and speak. 
and then a pool of 6,000 jurors were chosen by lot, and the jurors and the assembly members were paid so that even the poorest citizens could stand for election. That some bloke with a few olive trees could vote on a jury to convict a rich man must have seemed staggering. The ancient Greeks could shape their environment in a way that had never happened before to the extent that even the gods were deemed now to be fallible. So throughout the rise of the city-states came a layer of people who questioned how the planets moved, how the body worked, what was the ideal life. Pythagoras from the island of Samos attracted a group of followers to his idea that the highest plane that the soul could aspire to was mathematics. Partly he was anticipating the old joke of the teacher who says to a schoolboy, what's two times two? And the boy says, four. So the teacher says, good. And the boy says, what do you mean good? It's perfect. <laughs> so joining the Pythagoreans was like joining a martial arts class. You'd be told that you could only join if you were aware of the spiritual side. Pythagoras came up with a strict code for his followers that included rules such as, do not let swallows share one's roof. Do not eat from a whole loaf. Never eat beans. <laughs> Which must make it the only movement ever to be based half on satanic cult and half on Delia Smith. Today, we're going to make this lovely-looking pentagon using just five sides and the whites from three eggs. <laughs> now, the first serious studies of the anatomy were carried out by a series of doctors who went under the joint name Hippocrates and gave their name to the Hippocratic Oath. And in fact, loads of the words that we use today come from philosophers of this time. Xenophobia began with Xenophon, democracy with Democritus, platonic relationships with Plato. You can hardly imagine that happening with today's politicians. So that in 2,000 years' time, if you keep stumbling over words and making no sense, people will say, you're being very Prescottic today. <laughs> Empedocles came up with the theory that the way the body worked was the bottom half was full of blood and the top half was all air. So as you breathed in, the blood came up into the top half and pushed the air out through holes in the back of the nose. Right? Which may sound peculiar, but it was the first time that anybody had ever thought that air was something rather than nothing. Although Empedocles did then let himself down a bit when he jumped into a volcano to prove he was a god. <laughs> the confidence of this society must have seemed similar to that of the Victorians at the height of the British Empire. And one of the consequences was that philosophers felt that they could conquer the secrets of the universe. And they became increasingly exalted. So that by the time of Socrates, they were the celebrities of society. But the confidence of Athens was shattered when it was invaded by the Spartans, and the democracy was maintained, but the notion of invincibility had collapsed. And this was the world that Aristotle was born into in Macedonia in 384 BC. It was a world that retained the exhilaration of the democracy, but was questioning the certainties of a few years before. And what we don't know much about is Aristotle's personal life, which might seem strange to some people, because of course Hollywood films about ancient Greece and Rome show all the personal details. If this programme had been made by MGM, it'd be full of scenes like... God damn that Plato! I've been sat up all night and I still can't get my triangles as neat as his. I'll never be the greatest philosopher in Athens. Oh, Aristotle, you will, you will. And if you weren't too boneheaded to stop considering the universality of change within a given substance and look at me once in a while, you might realize I love you. Now, we do know, however, that Aristotle's father died when Aristotle was a boy, and at the age of 17, his guardian sent Aristotle to Athens to study at a new school called the Academy, which was run by Socrates' most famous student, Plato. 
Now, being sent to study in Athens sounds pretty unspectacular, I suppose, but it's testimony to how advanced they were that it sounds like something from our own times. And yet you can imagine the Academy having posters up for the Law Sock and the Gay Sock and Rag Week with Aristotle running through the Parthenon dressed as a baby with a bucket. <laughs> This was the world's first ever university, at a time when most of Europe was still grubbing around catching rabbits. <laughs> Aristotle became an enthusiastic follower of the ideas of his teacher at the academy, Plato. And Plato was a different type of philosopher from those who preceded him. And one of the unfortunate things about him is that despite the fact that no one has much idea of what he looked like, every modern drawing of him conforms to the stereotype philosopher, old, bald, with a long, unkempt, straggly beard. So instead of looking like a genius, poor Sod looks as if he must have given his lectures from a bench with a can of special brew. <laughs> Perception will never inform a true representation of reality, my she ruddy. Left me about. <laughs> Plato seemed to want to distance himself from the real world, and he had complete contempt for anyone who laboured, as this was concerned only with the trivia of earthly life. Referring to people who worked and tried to make sense of philosophy, he said, They're like some bald-headed little tinker who's just come out of prison, had a wash at the baths, and dressed himself up as a bridegroom ready to marry his master's daughter. Could the issue of such a match ever be anything other than contemptible bastards? Well, even that, in some ways, was an advanced view, as there wasn't another Greek to come out with stuff like that until Prince Philip. <laughs> Plato only had a limited interest in medicine, astronomy or inventions, so the chief idea which attracted Aristotle was Plato's attempt to resolve how we perceive something to be a particular thing. For example, we might know something as a bed, but then we see another bed, which may be completely different, but it's still a bed. In fact, no two beds are the same. What is it about an object that makes it a bed? There must be something, Plato said, or some set of rules which constitutes the ideal perfect bed. But this ideal perfect bed, which Plato called the form of a bed, doesn't exist in the material world, it's only an unseen concept. We can contemplate the perfect bed, but we can't spend the day recovering from a hangover in it. <laughs> And the same, he said, goes for all concepts. What's beautiful, he said, changes according to each individual. So there must be a concept of a genuine, perfect beauty, which can only exist somewhere up there in the sky. And Plato's point was that the world we see is an imperfect copy of this conceptual world, accessible only to those who are prepared to be philosophers. And for 20 years, Aristotle was considered to be Plato's most brilliant student. But then in 347 BC, Plato died, at which point it's clear that there had been a fundamental break between the ideas of these two men, because Aristotle was passed over for the job of taking over the academy. He changed his mind at some point about agreeing with Plato. He was now finding it impossible to go along with the idea that the most important things in the universe were things that weren't there. Things like beauty, he added, can't exist without an actual object to be beautiful. Aristotle got quite stroppy about this, saying, So goodbye to Plato's forms, for they are no more meaningful than singing la, la, la. Which is brilliantly childish, isn't it? <laughs> for an all-time genius. I wonder if, at other points, Plato would make an argument and he'd go, It, dip, dog, shit, you are it. <laughs>
Aristotle's turn to what became known as empiricism, which was studying the universe as it appeared, led to his exile from Athens. But he was able to pursue an understanding of every aspect of the world around him. He spent the next years in Asia Minor, studying and categorising 500 species of animal, analysing the different systems of democracy, compiling systems to show how the planets worked, and compiling a compendium of Olympic champions. And the city he was teaching in was then overrun by Persians, and Aristotle went to the city of Mytilene to teach a class that included the future Alexander the Great. In effect, he had now got one of the hardest jobs of all time, being a supply teacher with Alexander the Great in the class. <laughs> Our normal teacher lets us go home on Wednesday, sir. <laughs> And he lets us bring our axes into class. <laughs> At 335 BC, King Philip of Macedonia made his son Alexander the king, and around this time Aristotle returned to Athens to set up his own school, the Lyceum, apparently in opposition to the academy. So presumably now some parents were saying, I know the Lyceum is right over the other side of the Parthenon, but it has a very good reputation. <laughs> and then blocked the roads by taking their kids there every morning on 20-foot-wide horses. <laughs> Aristotle conducted his lessons while he was walking around and outside the building, which must have caused havoc. Someone had put their hand up and said, Sir, can I go to the toilet? And he probably said, I tell you what, why don't we all go? <laughs> Aristotle did two sets of lectures most days. The first was a detailed session for his students, and then in the evening he did a simpler version for the public, which in itself was a break from the Plato tradition of assuming the public to be ignorant and unworthy. And to show that you can't necessarily tell what something is just by relying on your senses, Aristotle did an experiment in which he took two bowls, one containing white liquid and one black liquid, and drop by drop he put the black liquid into the white liquid. But obviously the colour didn't appear to change until there were several drops of black liquid in it. And he concluded that everything is therefore in a state of constant change, which led him back to the problem, what is it that makes something what it is? Is an apple still an apple when it's decomposing? I went to see the Four Tops once, and none of the original members were in the band. They were just session musicians. So have I seen the Four Tops or not? I don't know. <laughs> Aristotle's answer was that everything contains an essence. It's driving force that remains unchanged and propels it through its journey from beginning to end. A man might grow tall, might then shrink, might go fat, thin or bald, but there is something which, in essence remains essentially him throughout. For example, to pick someone at random, Noel Edmonds. <laughs> First he was on the radio, then he was on the telly, now you only see him in newspapers, but throughout he remains, in essence, a deeply nauseating tosser. <laughs> Aristotle fitted these ideas into his science. Free from the view that everything was now an imitation of a perfect, godly concept, he could analyse the material world and seek each body's essence. And he worked out then from dissecting chickens that the heart was the central organ of the body. He analysed money, concluding that it works because it relates to an amount of labour that's been spent on the thing it's buying. And 1,800 years before Columbus, he wrote that the universe was made of spheres of which the Earth was one, and that they were all connected. Now, the way that advances like this are usually presented is that mankind is on this constant march towards discovery. But Aristotle could only develop these theories because he was prepared to challenge the idea that certain bodies were beyond comprehension. And really, it's the same now. When some things are portrayed as so glorious and magical that they defy logic. For example, I heard a newsreader last summer talking about the Queen Mother presenting as fact 
that she looked absolutely radiant at Ascot in her exquisite hat, as if the beauty of her hats derived from her presence on an exalted magical plane, without mentioning, of course, that she's going to wear beautiful hats because she's got about a hundred million squillion quid and therefore she's not likely to turn up at Ascot in a bobble hat with Derby County written on the front. <laughs> So Aristotle, as well as using his method to explain the natural world and astronomy, devoted a major part of his studies to what he called ethics. Here, he tried to show how human beings could be, as he put it, virtuous, prudent and magnanimous. And one of the problems with reading the book Ethics is that some things are clearly confused in translation. For example, there's a whole chapter on people who behave in an antisocial way. But the word he uses to describe this antisocial behaviour is incontinence. At one point he says, The incontinent man does wrong because he feels like it. <laughs> well, it's true, you can't help thinking, Oh, I can't agree with you there, Aristotle. <laughs> You're saying he just slashes on the city because he can't be bothered to get up? No. <laughs> A lot of the book is then concerned with friendship, how to make and cement friendships, to find the ideal way to behave, for example, he says in uh, The Ethics, it means searching for what he called the golden mean. In each area of behaviour, he said there are... Three dispositions, two of them vicious and one good, the mean. Every virtue, he said, was the middle way between two vices. So in the middle of the book is a table laying this out. Under the heading fear and confidence, there is rashness on one side and cowardice on the other, while the golden mean is courage. Under conversation is one side buffoonery, on the other side boorishness, and in the middle, wittiness. So in effect, he'd written the world's first self-help book. <laughs> he should have put adverts in the Sunday papers. Like you, I used to wonder why I always blew my chance when it came to getting promotion or going after that beautiful woman. Then I bought ethics and realised dropping my pants in the restaurant and lobbing onion barges at the waiter was boorish and not wittiness at all. <laughs> There is a logic to the ethics, possibly in a way that Aristotle himself didn't see, because he hints that what is considered acceptable behaviour depends to some extent on your social position. He condemns the decadence of the rich as licentiousness and says, It is not easy for a liberal man to be rich since he is neither acquisitive nor retentive of money. So Aristotle seems to have grasped the nature of the rich, because in ethics he gives an example of how a business deal can end up. Dionysius I promised to pay a fee to a harpist. The better he played, the higher the fee would be. But the next morning, the harpist asked for his money, and Dionysius replied that he'd already paid him by giving him the pleasure of anticipating the money. <laughs> Even better, in the middle of all this complex philosophy, Aristotle says, But a man can scarcely be happy if he's ugly. <laughs> he wouldn't have made a very good shrink, would he? I'm afraid I don't feel happy. Well, I'm not surprised you're spotty bulbous oaf. Get out. <laughs> so there was a thread running through his ideas then. Everything and everyone contains this essence that drives it, him or her. So we can now analyse the world, the stars, animals, human behaviour and the times of the 4x400 metres relay. But we can't do much to change any of them because everything and everyone is playing the role destined by nature. And in Aristotle's Athens, the layer of society that appeared the most naturally worthy were the small farmers and the poorer citizens. And these people needed a code. And this set of ideas becomes clearer in the lecture notes which were compiled into what is now his most famous book, Politics. 
There are continuous debates about how society should be run, and Aristotle set out to place philosophy at the centre of those arguments. And the first question he addressed was slavery. Now, the Greek phrase for slave was instrumentalis vocale, which means tool that talks. Slaves weren't allowed to breed without permission. And Posidonius wrote that women would give birth and carry on working in the same day. Though you can imagine these people from Hampstead going, oh, how marvellously natural. <laughs> and what about this one? A slave's evidence was not admissible in court unless they had first been tortured. <laughs> the way Aristotle justified the slave system was by arguing it was natural and that it was to the benefit of everybody that we each carried out our natural role. As he put it... It is nature's intention to distinguish even the bodies of freemen and slaves. The latter are usually endowed with strength to suit their employment, while the upright carriage of the former renders them unfit for servile work. Which is convenient. <laughs> I'd love to help out, only I've got a straight back. <laughs> and I wonder if you had the equivalent of people like Tony Parsons and Ben Elton deliberately stooping to make out they were off the street. Women like slaves, said Aristotle, should take their place as inferior beings to comply with nature. Though, to be fair, he also quoted Hesiod approvingly when he said that for a man to create a household, he needs... First a house, then a wife, then an ox. <laughs> well, I bet there was some columnist in the Daily Telegraph who said, So now a man has to rank his wife above his ox. It's political correctness gone mad. <laughs> Aristotle also said, Women should marry at the age of about 18 years, and men at about 37, for then their prospective powers of procreation will decline simultaneously. It's worth noting that he wrote this when he was about 37. <laughs> politics is subheaded prenatal care and training and in it he insists that conception should always take place in the winter as strong winds from the north ensure sturdy babies. That sounds like the sort of thing a Geordie would say. <laughs> oh, I conceived in a blizzard, me! The other sperm lake where I'd wear an overcoat and sweaters I never even had a t-shirt. <laughs> but as in ethics, the best way to rule, he said, was to attempt a strengthening of the middle class, which will put a stop to dissensions rising from inequality. It's important to realise here, he wasn't talking about the middle class as we know it. There wasn't a whole social strata wandering around Athens going, oh, we've got the builders in the moment, it's absolute hell. <laughs> We're having the columns and the statues taken out so we can knock the bath and the temple into one. <laughs> Some of Aristotle's ideas may sound odd to us, but he was writing at a time when everyone believed in oracles, which were places where people went to ask the gods for advice, and then a priestess, sometimes in a trance, would mouth the answer of the gods with a cryptic message, which is typical of Greek gods. They could never say, There's some bad weather coming, so hoard plenty of grain. It was always, French caterpillar crawls on biscuit, perhaps. Five, four. <laughs> Which makes it so extraordinary that his work on the anatomy and categorisation of animals wasn't overtaken until Darwin. His explanation of the universe as this series of spheres wasn't overtaken until the 16th century by Copernicus. Though another constraint on Aristotle's thinking was that by necessity, Athens had to be in constant readiness for war. So even when he was writing about music, he says, The learning of music should not harm the body by rendering it unfit for military training. Well, what instrument's likely to do that then? <laughs> 
Did they have some sort of early violin where the bow has a serrated edge and you make a noise by soaring through your leg? <laughs> he mentions in particular the flute and the harp. About the flute, he says... There is another objection to the flute. It is an instrument expressive not of moral character, but rather of orgiastic states. Well, there's more to James Galway than meets the eye. <laughs> The decline of Athens did result in its eventual fall to the invasion of Macedonia, and following the death of Alexander the Great, there was an anti-Macedonian backlash. Aristotle was charged with impiety, the same charge that had been made against Socrates, which had resulted in his death sentence, and so for the second time Aristotle left Athens. But his achievement had been to revolutionise the idea of thought, so that it was no longer a pursuit for its own sake, but something to be applied so that we can work out how everything around us works and how we should work to fit in with our surroundings, and who won the 200 metres breaststroke in 460 BC. <laughs> so as he left Athens, what would he have thought? If he had imagined the American lecturer that I saw last year walking across the ruins under the Parthenon, who was lecturing some students pointing at the building where these 500 jurors sat in the first ever law courts, and he said, the important thing to note with this building is where the agumniation meets the triglyph. And I really regret now not getting hold of him and saying, no, it isn't. <laughs> This is where the dawn of human civilization found a place to hold debates and assemblies and legal battles that were carried out in one of the most extraordinary experiments in human society and the agumniation probably meets the triglyph there because the plasterer wanted to knock off early and go home, you American dingbat. <laughs> and I bet when you ask tourists from your country if they've got any questions, they say things like, so which house was Demis Roussas in? <laughs> One year after leaving Athens, Aristotle died. The Greek cities were taken over by Rome, although the Romans held the Greek philosophers in high esteem and translated works into Latin. Aristotle was adopted by Muslims under the Ottoman Empire and his ideas became the basis for the philosophy of the Catholic Church, who conveniently forgot the bits about good men not being able to be rich. Later on, he was taken over by the Victorians, who uh, liked the stuff about self-restraint, but conveniently forgot about the bits where he approved of homosexuality. It does make you think, why did he bother writing anything at all? People just take whatever they like. He was probably admired by the ugly flute player society. <laughs> because Aristotle saw every aspect of the universe as connected, when he questioned one part of it, he questioned the lot. Now, in some ways, this would probably drive you around the bend, because even if you said something like, it's raining, he'd go, or is it? <laughs> But the attraction of these people is that because they felt society was driven by thoughts, they were obsessed with ideas. And compare that to today, in a society that increasingly regards all ideas as a nuisance. So if you want to be a successful politician, have no opinions, because then you'll only need to change them later. If you want to be a celebrity, be as vacuous as possible. And now we've reached new depths with Big Brother, which promotes the idea that to get on, you have to be capable of sitting in a house for nine weeks without offering any opinion whatsoever about anything. <laughs> If someone had got into that house and explained how the Burmese military tortured dissidents by beating the soles of their feet, the response would be, well, I'd hate that because I've got very sensitive feet. <laughs> the slogan of the academy was that education was valuable simply because it was right for men to inquire. That wouldn't happen now. It wouldn't be allowed. I think the person best suited to be a scientist for the government today is my uncle. Because as a kid... When it was dinner time, he'd always say, don't leave the gristle, that's the best bit. If I was eating an apple, he'd go, eat the core, it's the best bit. And if I ate the core, he'd probably go, well, you're not leaving the tree, are you? That's the best bit. 
He'd be the perfect government scientist. Genetically modified luminous sweet corn, get it down, ya. Depleted uranium, it don't do you any harm. Go on, spongy brain infected mad cow beef. It's got all the goodness in it, that is. Get it down, ya. And every university course or project has to be sponsored. So that's not an aid to inquiry. What would Aristotle make of the teacher of the future? Who will probably say, what's two and two? And the kid will say four. And the teacher will say, no. The correct answer is, the number sponsored by Accurist is four. <laughs> The Mark Steele Lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Mel Hudson and Martin Heider. The producer was Lucy Armitage. A lovely little thinker, but a bugger when he's pissed.